welcome to the Healthy, Wealthy, and Smart Podcast. Each week, we interview the best and brightest in physical therapy, wellness, and entrepreneurship. We give you cutting-edge information you need to live your best life, healthy, wealthy, and smart. The information in this podcast is for entertainment purposes only and should not be used as personalized medical advice. And now, here's your host, Dr. Karen Litzee. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. I'm so excited to announce today that we have a new sponsor for the podcast, and they are Health IQ. So what is Health IQ? They are an insurance company that helps health-conscious people like runners, cyclists, weightlifters, vegetarians, vegans get lower rates on their life insurance. To see if you qualify, get your free quote today at healthiq.com slash HWS. So I'm so excited to have them on board. They basically reward you for living a healthy lifestyle. How can you go wrong? Check out the link. See if you qualify to lower your your life insurance rates. All right. So on today's podcast episode, I am thrilled and honored to have Dr. Fritz Boatner. He is a specialist in joint preserving arthroscopic surgery and minimally invasive total joint replacements of the knee and hip. His practice concentrates on the non-surgical and surgical treatment of early arthritis. As part of a patient-centered individual approach, he performs arthroscopic cartilage surgery and joint-preserving osteotomies, as well as minimally invasive total joint replacements and resurfacings. Minimally invasive surgery reduces surgical trauma, resulting in advantages for early rehab, he says. In addition, patients love their cosmetically appealing incisions. He was born in Germany. Dr. Boatner studied at the top international centers for his specialty, completing fellowships in four sub-areas, as well as additional training in pelvic osteotomies and open hip dislocation with surgeries in Germany, Switzerland, and the United States. He He has authored an orthopedic textbook, as well as numerous scientific publications. So this was born out of a Facebook post that I saw people asking about the difference between an anterior and a posterior hip replacement surgery. So I thought I'd go to the source. I would go to a physician that actually does both of those surgeries, both anterior and posterior. So we find out what's the difference. Why should someone choose one over the other? The evolution of hip replacement surgeries. Post-surgical restrictions on movement, rehab and pain management considerations following hip replacement, and a lot more. This was a great episode. After you listen to this, if you are someone thinking about getting a hip replacement and have a loved one thinking about getting a hip replacement, or you are a physical therapist, a trainer, yoga, Pilates, this will give you a much better appreciation of the surgical procedure itself, and it will help just enhance the way that you treat your patient or client. So everyone, please enjoy today's episode with Dr. Boatner. Hi, Dr. Boatner. Welcome to the podcast. I'm so happy to have you on. Hi, Karen. How are you doing? Very well. Yeah, thank you. So today we're going to be talking all about total hip replacements. Uh, This is obviously a really hot topic with my audience, being we're mostly physical therapists. So I'm just going to jump right in and go with our first question, and that is, can you explain the difference between a minimally invasive total hip replacement versus a more traditional total hip replacement? Yeah, Karen, thank you. That's a, that's a good question, and I think a lot of uh, physical therapists, but also patients have that on their mind trying to understand what is, a, what is a minimal invasive surgery. So minimal invasive surgeries kind of started like early in the 2000s when 
you know, you kind of look at traditional approaches to the hip and they were these kind of, you know, 10 inch incisions, 15 inch incisions, very long incisions that try to get good exposure to put in hip replacement. And I think at that time point, people realized, well, you don't really need that long an incision. And what they started doing is kind of shortening the incision, you know, ultimately somewhere to the range of, you know, three to four inches. But they kind of kept the surgery itself the same. They kind of, the posterior approach was the most popular approach in the U.S., so people would go from, you know, like in 10 inch incision and, you know, shorten it down to four, but still kind of do the same kind of releases that they did before, you know, taking the external rotators off and, you know, trying to get exposure in, in a quite similar fashion to what had been done in the past. And, you know, kind of it looked more aesthetically on the outside because you had a shorter incision. But uh, underneath it, there was pretty much still the same kind of surgery done. And I think a couple of years later, uh, we started to look into options of actually doing the surgery in a less traumatic, so maybe if you were like truly minimally invasive way where you kind of maybe uh, respect the muscle insertions a little bit more. And uh, there was a surgeon in Chicago who kind of tried to do a surgery without damaging any muscles, and he kind of favored this two incision technique where you kind of would have two separate incisions put in the cup and the stem. And ultimately, that kind of failed because it was technically very cumbersome, complication rates were very high, uh, but it kind of was the first step into this kind of trying to operate without detaching muscles. And that later on then led to, um, you know, kind of the um, anterior approach or direct anterior. Uh, that is an approach that actually allows you to get into the hip joint without detaching any muscles. And it kind of that has gotten much more popular now over recent years. Another aspect that comes with that is that there has been a tendency to maybe favor shorter stems that uh, kind of rely on more proximal ingrowth, also in a way of being less invasive inside the femoral canal. Feel well, like a traditional implant might have been, you know, kind of anywhere between 15, 17 centimeters long. And modern implants might be actually quite a bit shorter, like 12 centimeters or so. And so you violate less of the femoral canal. And so I think that are the kind of main aspects when you look at, you know, kind of what do we understand under minimal invasive surgery. I think today is a combination of shorter incision. We do an approach that kind of try to minimize any damage to the muscular structures. And we then use implants that don't reach as far down into the canal, kind of trying to respect a little bit more of the bone and trying to have more physiologic load patterns in the bone. Yeah. And is that why, because I remember when I started as a physical therapist uh, many years ago, after a patient had a post or had a total hip replacement, they were sort of toe touch weight bearing. They couldn't. They were still walking with a walker for weeks because they couldn't pull full, put their full weight down through the uh, affected limb. And are these uh, advances in the surgical technique reasons why now post surgically patients are up and walking right away? Yeah. So that's something that's not related to the approach at all. Mm. So what you're referring to is like an early time when we started to use uncemented implants. And mm -hmm. in the beginning, you know, everybody was kind of worried. You know, you put these press fit implants in and the patient starts walking on them. And surgeons were worried that if that implant starts moving a little bit, it will ultimately not ingrow. And so I remember back then we actually did some research on that, looking at whether an implant moves more when you put full weight on it versus toe touch weight bearing. And we pretty fast realized that press fit is actually quite solid fixation and you can put full weight on it. So it's not really approach related and it's definitely not implant, you know, kind of design related at this time point any longer. Every implant you can 
uh, implant today with an uncemented technique, you could put full weight on today, you know, if the bone quality of the patient is adequate. So I think that was more like a traditional thing as we transited away from cemented stem fixation to uncemented, that the initial level of insecurity with that fixation prompted us to use toe touch or you know partial weight bearing for a while. But today, I think most of us let people do full weight bearing regardless of the approach. Got it, got it. Thanks for clearing that up. Now, earlier uh, you had mentioned the anterior approach versus the posterior approach. So let's talk about that. Um, what are, you sort of already said what the differences are in the anterior approach, you kind of spare a little bit of, uh, of the muscle and kind of respect those insertional areas. So what criteria do you look for when deciding whether or not you're going to perform an anterior or a posterior approach? Mm-hmm. So it's a couple of criteria. Now the anterior approach, you come in from the front into the hip joint. Posterior approach, you come in from the back of the joint into uh, into the hip. So there are certain anatomic things that make it a little bit more difficult to do either one of those two approaches. So if you look at the usual weight distribution of people, so if you are like obese, then you know you could have your weight primarily in the front, on the belly, or you could have it more on the side over the hips. So if you look at that distribution, you know, making an anterior approach in somebody that has a big belly is a little bit more complicated because it limits your ability to get into the hip joint from the front. While if you have somebody that has uh, most of their, um, you know, kind of fat tissue on the side of the hip, it's a little more tricky actually to do the surgery from the back. So, you know, these kind of distribution of weight issues kind of affect to some extent the selection of the approach. The second is the level of, of stiffness. So if you have somebody that is extremely stiff, let's say we talk about a you know, 50-year-old male that is very muscular, it can become actually quite difficult to get exposure to a hip uh, with an anterior approach because you know, with relieving all your muscles attached, it becomes much more difficult to actually mobilize the femur up. Now, it can always be done, but sometimes you actually end up starting to release some muscles in order to get exposure, and you might lose the benefit of an anterior approach. Now, the patient will never see that, but for us, when you see these very big muscular male patients, you know, we often have a tendency to kind of, you know, maybe move towards the posterior approach, which for these patients that have often no fat tissue on the side of their hip, it's actually a very simple and straightforward approach. That brings me to, you know, what are we trying to gain here? Now, an anti-approach is a more stable approach. So what the benefit of that is, is that you could, you know, kind of uh, let somebody drive right away or, you know, do certain activities that you might prohibit them from doing with a posterior approach. And therefore, you know, if you have somebody that, you know, needs to commute to their office, you know, maybe you select that patient more for an anti-approach while somebody else that doesn't have to do that, you might want to do safely a posterior approach. Um, Last but not least, there is bone uh, shape. You know, if you have, uh, we, we as orthopedic surgeons always look at the bone like kind of in three shapes. You know, there is uh, uh, the champagne flute where the femur starts very wide and then gets extremely narrow as you come down. And then the more osteoporotic stovepipe where you kind of have pretty much like, a, you know, kind of the same diameter of the bone all along. Uh, and then you have a middle version of the, that combines the two. And that has some implications because a stovepipe is very difficult sometimes to get fixation with an uncemented implant. So sometimes you might have to cement that. And cementing is probably safer done 
from the back than it is from the front because you have better access into the femur. So, you know, if you see a very osteoporotic kind of stovepipe uh, femur, you might select a posterior approach because you can actually cement an implant better, especially for an older patient. Now, if you have a very uh, champagne fluid, like kind of narrow femoral canal, that can sometimes interfere with how you can put an implant, especially a banana-shaped type implant, into the femur. And and sometimes that might actually make it difficult to do the surgery from the front because from the front we can only broach, and um, we then would have to use some kind of flexible reamer to open up the canal. And some surgeons might actually select patients like this more for a posterior approach. Interestingly, we usually have the big male patients that have this kind of uh, champagne flute kind of narrowing of the canal. So they are kind of moving more towards the posterior approach while you have, you know, most of the female patients that actually kind of have more either the, the medium or the more wider canals that kind of have most of the weight on the side of the hip that are more kind of, um, you know, kind of more uh, appealing to do an anti-approach on. Got it. So there's uh, uh, definitely a lot more to take into consider than just the experience of the doctor. Yeah, I, I, w I would say so. And patients always ask me when they come in, so you don't just do on tears? And I say, well, no, not really. It's, uh, surgery is not like a field that is black and white. It's not that one approach is just good. And sometimes, you know, when you read the news, you think like, oh, there's just one way to do it. And that is really... Like the one message, if I can uh, distribute that here, is, is not that one approach is a better approach. I think there are certain patients that are better off with one approach than the other. And the biggest downside is if you just do one approach, like a one-fits-all approach, you will likely kind of expose some of your patients to increased risk, whether that is just doing an anterior or just doing a posterior. So I find you know, having the different type of approaches at your availability allows you to select the approach that will best fit your patient, the bone of your patient, and the patient's expectations. And, 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 and that's what I kind of do a little bit in my practice. And, and that makes perfect sense. I mean, you can't just because the pa and also just because the patient is asking you to do a certain approach, it doesn't mean that you do it. Right? Yeah, it's kind of interesting. I always get confronted a little bit with patients coming in, having a very um, strong opinion about what they want. And I smile a little bit about this because obviously they have no experience in how you should select a patient, but they sometimes are so opinionated that they tell me, you know, like, yes, I heard your advice, but I still want to do that. And then, you know, I kind of, I mean, I can do any kind of surgery on any patient, but it, it kind of defeats a little bit the purpose of professional advice. And it's sometimes very interesting in what importance the media have, um, you know, for patients to select an approach. And it seems sometimes to be almost more important than the expert opinion. Yeah, absolutely. And now, do, are there any um, short and long-term outcomes for an anterior approach versus a po posterior approach as far as um, any, you know, long-term studies on outcomes? Yeah. Yeah, so, so I, there is an increasing body of literature that kind of compares the two approaches, the posterior approach and the anterior approach. And there seems to be, you know, there, there overall, I think, is an increasing understanding that when you get out to, let's say, you know, anywhere between eight and 12 weeks after the surgery, 
that functionally there's relatively little differences between the two approaches. So people will have pain relief, they will be able to walk, they can climb stairs and do all these activities of daily living that are important for our patients. On the other hand, there are nuances in difference. And that means when you look at dislocation rates, um, you will find that the dislocation rates are lower in the anterior approach. Like, you know, I, I have to say in my practice that has been I, I never had high dislocation rates, even with a posterior approach. But it is striking that pretty much the risk of dislocation appears uh, disappears, um, you know, from your practice once you do an anterior approach that respects, respects the muscle. So in my mind, that actually suggests that the anterior approach is, you know, more more stable. So I favor to use it for anybody that is at risk for dislocation, whether that is due to neuromuscular disease or whether it's, you know, older woman with, you know, kind of more stretchy kind of tissues, things like that, that have been traditionally considered high risk. In my practice, they all get an anterior approach. And then there is the early recovery after the surgeries. And, you know, what is striking with an anterior approach is that people often feel that they can use their leg quite naturally. Now, Let's not forget, we have changed a lot in the surgery, and only one part is the approach that we do. You know, we have changed the pain management, we have changed the anesthesia, everything has been geared towards early discharge. Mm -hmm. And when you optimize all these steps, then the differences of how a patient feels at, you know, two days after surgery or seven days after surgery, you know, becomes quite small when you compare anti and posterior patients themselves. So I would say the biggest benefit for the anterior patients is that they don't have the restriction. And it might be just mentally. If you tell a patient you don't have restrictions, you can sit on a regular chair, then I think they feel a little better about their surgery than if you tell them, you know what, you have to sit on a higher chair, you have to use the toilet seat elevation. And that might be a purely um, psychological phenomenon, if you will. Yeah, because I think sometimes patients can build up this fear around movement after their surgery, or even, even before they have the surgery, they're already having a fear around movement with the restrictions for the posterior approach. And actually, before we go on, can you just kind of share what those restrictions are and how long you, you usually have your patients keep those restrictions in place? So like traditionally, uh, post-operative hip precaution have been used for six weeks after surgery, after a posterior lateral approach. And uh, in the idea is to avoid flexion beyond 90 degrees, to avoid adduction, that means crossing over your legs, and to avoid internal rotation where the knee goes in and the foot kind of goes out, you know, because that would risk that the ball comes out in the back of the hip. So what we do is we ask people to put a pillow between their legs when they sleep at night, to sit on a high chair, to use the toilet seat elevation, to not bend beyond 90 degrees. That usually also results in them being not able to drive in a regular car. And so that's what we consider hip precautions. Now, the anti-approach does also have, you know, some surgeons use precautions for the anti-approach, but they're more subtle. So that means they don't want their patients to hyperextend the hip and point the foot outward uh, a lot is to, to minimize the risk of coming out in the front. But, you know, that type of hyperextension is something that most patients don't do anyhow. So they don't recognize it as a true limitations, as a true right. limitation. Right. And when you're, uh, what is the incidence of dislocation for a posterior approach? You know, I looked at my data. We kind of published on a seven, 780 patient and we had a dislocation rate of 1% with a posterior approach. So if you look at this, this is not really a lot, and only no. three patients ultimately ended up having 
you know, to have a change in the liner of the implant. So you look at numbers that are less than 0.5% of patients after a posterior approach in experience sense that have a dislocation. Now, since I switched to, an anterior, to the anterior approach five years ago, I have uh, knock on wood, never had a dislocation. So that gives you, uh, you know, it gives you a, a little bit the overall picture here is that, you know, it's difficult to prove that the anterior approach, even with my data, it's difficult to statistically research wise prove that we have better dislocations rate. And a lot has to do that our posterior dislocation rates are not that high either. But I do tell my patients after an anterior approach, I'm a little bit more liberal allowing them into going into yoga or certain activities that require more range of motion. I'm probably a touch more restrictive restrictive in patients that actually have a posterior approach. Mm -hmm. No, that makes sense. And have you ever heard, this is from a, a therapist um, in the U.S., that she had had a patient that was restricted to 60 degrees of flexion at the hip instead of that 90 degrees. Do you know any reason why that might be? Yeah, that's unusual. No, surgeons might from time to time actually elect to change precautions. You know, um, uh, they might say, oh, for this particular patient, I don't only want it to bend 60 degrees. And very often that has to do that they perceive that there is an increased risk for dislocation for that particular patient in the early recovery phase. Or they might have done a tissue repair that requires them to limit the range of motion for some time until the tissues have healed. It would be highly unusual. I mean, today in, in, in Manhattan, I don't think you can do a hip replacement and tell your patient you can only bend, yeah. you know. 60 degrees. And I, I don't think that that's a concept that would fly with patients. But having said that, you know, there is still, you know, uh, quite a variation of how you recover your patients after surgery. And there might be an occasional surgeon that feels more comfortable with 60 degrees. And, and at the end of the day, I think, you know, that will not necessarily have a big impact on how a patient does at 10 weeks or 12 weeks after surgery. And on that note, we're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsor, Health IQ. Do you like saving money on your car insurance for being a good driver? Health IQ saves you money on your life insurance for living a health-conscious lifestyle. Health IQ uses science and data to secure lower rates on life insurance for health-conscious people like runners, cyclists, strength trainers, and more. To see if you qualify, get your free quote today at healthiq.com slash HWS. These savings are exclusive to Health IQ and you must qualify to get the special rate. So let's talk about what you look for in a physical therapy protocol, since like I said, a lot of people listening to this are physical therapists. So what are the physical therapy or rehab app, uh, implications or protocols with an anterior versus a posterior? Yeah, let's start with the posterior approach because I think it's a little easier. Now, the posterior approach is actually from the tissue trauma, an approach that leaves the front of the hip completely untouched. So anything you do working onto flexion or abduction is something that is actually uh, possible with a posterior approach. So if you want to have somebody that does straight leg raises or things like that, it's usually not a big issue after a posterior approach because we don't do anything in the front of the hip. Now, you have to observe the hip precautions, but you can work on abduction. Your patients can walk as far as they want because you know, usually it's a little bit less uh, easy to irritate uh, a posterior approach after surgery. 
Now, let's, so all our patients go for physical therapy. They do that three times a week as much as we can to kind of try to get them going. And we give the physical therapist quite a bit of leverage of how to work with the hip as long as they observe the restriction of not bending beyond 90 degrees, not doing internal rotation, and not crossing over the leg. So, uh, you know, that gives you kind of proprioceptive exercises, isometric exercises, things like that, that you can usually do with your patients relatively early in the recovery. Now, one thing every physical therapist should recognize is that, you know, if you don't do anything with the hip, patients are going to be fine after hip replacement. The rule of physical therapy is actually first not to do harm. And, And I think sometimes that gets forgotten because we have some patients that do extremely well and as a therapist, you should always realize the patient that is two weeks or three weeks after surgery, you can't just push them because they're able to do one exercise to do more. So there has to be always, you need to be a little bit on the break and let people step by step recover over a six to 10 week period of time and not try to do everything at once in the first two weeks. Because then you get, get into where people get, you know, get tissue irritations and inflammation and you know, ultimately stiffness, and then that cannot be our goal. Now let's look at the anti-approach. The anti-approach is actually a little different. And because we come in from the front, we kind of actually push away, you know, the reflected head of the of the rectus muscle, which is in kind of an, a flexor of the hip joint and it protects against anterior dislocation. Uh, the iliopsoas get, gets exposed because some surgeons actually take down the capsule so that the muscle could now wrap over the implant. What, what that being said is that we are actually are very cautious about aggressively pursuing physical therapy after an anterior approach. We know our patients feel very good. And what that means is they're prone to overdoing it. If you see some of those patients, they actually kind of do pretty good and you, you, you have a tendency to actually just, you know, kind of push them along and do more and more as they kind of get more comfortable. And very often that results at two or three weeks that they get to a breaking point where they then overdo it and then start to get quite increasing pain and then they get kind of sidelined for a while. So we actually try to avoid that. So in my personal practice, I often don't do any physical therapy in the first three weeks, and I just tell them to walk. And once I get to the three-week mark, I look at them, and everything is fine. Then we often work a focus on things like flexibility, because I want them to be able to fully extend the hip. Very often when you come in from the front, and I repair the capsule and uh, the um, the rectus muscle, I get a little bit tightness in the front. So they have a little bit more an issue to get to full extension. So I work on some exercises that facilitate full extension of the hip. Uh, and then I start putting them on a bike, condition them. I do proprioceptive exercises and things like that. And somewhere in that time point, around three to four weeks, uh, you, you get to where you could probably start advancing things more rapidly. But in the first 21 days, I strongly advise against anything, no, anything um, you know, aggressive, no matter how well your patient does. Focus on proprioception, focus on gait, and otherwise, you know, stay away from anything that is too invasive and too aggressive. Great. And what would be an example of something that would be too aggressive or invasive for those anterior proteins? Uh, the classic example is straight leg raises. Mm-hmm. You know, straight leg raises are toxic exercise for the hip because you have a very long lever arm of the leg that acts on the hip, on, a, on the flexor muscle, the ellipsoas muscle, that acts right on the hip joint and tries to lift up the hip. And it goes over the cup and is something that almost guaranteed will cause irritation of the hip after an anterior approach. And so I think these exercises that work into flexion, whether it's seated flexion exercises of the hip, 
straight leg raising exercises. Those I strongly um, recommend not to engage in in the first four to six weeks after an anti-approach. Great, great. That is great advice. Thank you so much. And now you had mentioned a little bit earlier how uh, during the surgery, the um, pain management has has changed. You know, so we obviously have in the news every day to talk uh, talking about opioids and the use of opioids. So after uh, these total hip replacements, how has that protocol changed for patients? Yeah, as far as so I think you know, total yeah, total hip replacements now. What has changed is that we actually kind of take a preemptive approach to that. That means that people that are on narcotics prior to surgery, we ask them to kind of tailor down the narcotic use. We actually send them to pain management doctors to minimize the exposure to narcotics prior to surgery as much as we can. Because most of the people that have osteoarthritis of the hip should not be on a narcotic if they come into surgery. Then uh, just before we start the surgery, we actually give our patients a cocktail that consists of kind of pre-medication. So we give them uh, neuropathic pain medication, you know, something like Lyrica or Neurontin. We give them an anti-inflammatory. We give them a, a narcotic. We give them uh, an anti-emetic so that when they come out of the surgery, number one, we want to block the pain immediately. We don't want them to start to get into pain. And number two, we want them to, you know, kind of, we don't want them to feel nauseated. So we will actually already before surgery start treating nausea, even if it's not there yet. Then during the surgery, we often give a combination of an IV anti-inflammatory, uh, an anti-nausea medication that we give IV. We often will give them a little cortisone uh, just to ease, uh, you know, the response to the surgical trauma a little bit. And then when they come out, we pretty much immediately start with a pain protocol that doesn't just focus on one medication. It's usually a combination of a narcotic, um, a short or, uh, and long-acting, of um, anti-inflammatory, of Tylenol. Very often we give that in the early phase, in the first 24 hours, as an IV uh, application so that the patient doesn't have to swallow pills when they come right out of surgery. And that kind of has allowed us to block that initial uh, pain and then we do regional anesthesias. You know, we kind of just like kind of numb the leg to do the surgery. And so when the patient wakes up, they really feel like they didn't have a surgery, like kind of, they're not like after general anesthesia, patients are often a little drowsy and nauseated mm-hmm. and things like that. And you don't have those feelings any longer. And that allows us really to kind of make that a relatively comfortable transition for a patient to wake up after surgery and feel like, okay, I can concentrate on my hip. It's not that I'm, you know, throwing up or feel very uncomfortable health-wise in general. Yeah, and that makes a lot of sense. And I found in the patients that I've seen lately who've had total hip replacements that they're off pretty much all pain medication within a week or or less. And that's what I tell my patients. I tell my patients within a week, I expect them to be off narcotics. I don't mind them taking a low-dose anti-inflammatory and Tylenol as needed. And if they really need a narcotic at night to sleep, you know, that's not the end of the world. But after hip replacement, I think most of our patients should be off narcotics. And for the physical therapy audience, uh, therapist audience here, I think it's important to realize if your patient requires narcotics 10 days, 12 days out of surgery, tailor back your physical therapy. You know, you cannot increase activity levels in therapy and your patient is on narcotics three, four times a day. You need to immediately realize, okay, First, he has to stop the narcotics. Then I can intensify the rehab. Got it. That's great advice. Thanks so much. And I think all of this uh, is so important in setting the expectations for the patient as well. 
um, so that the physician, the physical therapist, we're all on the same page. And I think it just makes it a lot easier for the patient to transition through the surgery, the rehab, and then back to full function. Yeah, I agree. And, you know, sometimes patients go on websites and they think, oh, I have my surgery. And then two days later, I can go on a tennis court. And, you know, no, no, no. What we're trying to do is here, let you get back into your activities of daily living. Make sure you're comfortable, you know, kind of taking care of yourself after the surgery. Maybe go back to work after, you know, two weeks and things like that. But our goal is not to do any sport in the first six weeks. Yeah, I, I, I get that a lot, actually, um, because people go on and they say, well, this person or, or it, it's always like this professional athlete had X, Y and Z surgery. Yeah. And look at their back playing after six weeks. And yeah. then you really have to have this conversation with the patient that that's not really your realistic goal. Yeah, I think that that is a very important conversation to have. And, you know, sometimes for us, it's actually difficult before the surgery. Because you might imagine people have all kinds of fears and, you know, kind of, so you don't want to kind of tell them, oh, you know what, you're going through a procedure where, you know, you will not be able to do this and that after surgery. So it's a fine line of, you know, kind of how you um, communicate realistic expectations. And I think it's one of the more difficult conversations for us to have with patients. Yeah. And uh, how do you best approach that from, from your angle as, as the surgeon? Usually I do open-ended questions. I ask him, what do you expect? And when I realize that what, what they are hoping to get is out of what I think they could get, then I will start kind of, you know, in, you know, referring to their personal situation to explain to them, you know, what they might not be able to do and what they actually might be able to do. And I try to kind of communicate that in advance, which actually helps quite a bit. Um, you know, if you don't tell patients in advance and they always think, oh, something went wrong with the surgery because now I can't do that. So mm -hmm. I actually really ask them, so what do you expect? When do you want to go back to work? You know, um, um, how many stairs do you have in your house? You know, how do you anticipate that you're, you know, kind of what are your goals? What do you want to do two weeks out of surgery? And then when I realize somebody has completely unrealistic expectations, uh, then I kind of you know, start uh, explaining to that, you know, what they want to do might not be in their best interest and might not actually be good for their recovery. So I think we've got a, a great overview of total hip replacements, what physical therapists need to look for, how we can communicate some expectations with our patients, the difference between minimally invasive anterior and posterior. So I want to thank you for uh, a nice, concise explanation for all of this. So thank you very much. And before we... Thank you for having me. Yeah. Before we finish, I always ask uh, my guests the same question, and that is, uh, given where you are in your life and in your career, what advice would you give to yourself newly, uh, as a newly minted doctor out of uh, medical school? Well, I think um, the advice I want to give is to keep, career, to, to keep your curiosity about things. Like when you kind of, um, you know, get confronted with something that is new or maybe something that you feel like is a question that hasn't been answered, try to dig deeper. I, I find that a lot of things that happened to me in my career were the result of that kind of curiosity of being interested in, you know, kind of how to advance something or how to solve a problem that exists. And once you start to do that, it's quite funny, you know, things start happening to you, you know, now suddenly things are coming your way that you would have never dreamt of happening. So I feel that being curious and, uh, you know, today not accepting that all the problems have been solved, I think is, is something that we should preserve kind of entering our professional career. 
Yeah. And that is great advice. And we'll end on that there. What is the best way if people want to find out more about you? Um, what is the, where's the best place people can find you? Yeah. I mean, we have a website, you know, at www.drbotner.com um, where you can find information about our practice. You can find information about us on the HSS website at www.hss.edu. And if you look for my name, Botner, B-O-E-T-T-N-E-R, you will find some information there as well. Well, thank you so much for coming on and sharing all this information. I'm, I'm very, very grateful. So thanks so much. Okay. Thank you, Karen. And everyone else, thanks so much for listening. I hope you got a lot out of this. I know I did. Uh, have a great week and stay healthy, wealthy, and smart. So a huge thanks to Dr. Botner for coming on to the podcast today and also to our new sponsor, Health IQ. So if you want to get rewarded for healthy behavior by lowering your health insurance to see if you qualify, get your free quote today at healthiq.com slash HWS. Again, Health IQ is an insurance company that helps health conscious people get lower rates on their life insurance. And I'm so excited to have them on board. So thanks to Health IQ and thanks for listening. Thank you for listening and please subscribe to the podcast at podcast.healthywealthysmart.com. And don't forget to follow us on social media.